The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is Calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California Coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here, a.k.a. Hottie. Uh, I'm at Sirens and Titans. You may or may not have heard of this place. If you follow Dave Zabriskie at all, he worked out here. And I am here now, and I'm here with Jacques DeVore. Later in the show, you're going to hear an interview with Jacques. He has a new book out. Uh, called Maximum Overload for Cyclists. Jacques had me working out already, so my brain is a little fuzzy right now. But we're in the middle of a workout. Jacques's gonna put me through the peak of this routine that's in the book. What are we gonna do real quick? Okay, we're gonna do walking lunges, which is what's in the book, and it's a great uh, exercise for cyclists. It's a high-speed explosive exercise, so it's built for developing power, not strength, which a lot of people confuse. So we try to keep the speed and the velocity up and the force production just at the highest level we can. So you're gonna be doing it with a couple of dumbbells. We're gonna try to see if we can do about a minute and a half. All right, folks, enjoy this show, and I'm gonna try to get through this set with Jacques. And drop in, one, good, nice wide step, two, good, three, four, good, five, six, excellent, keep that speed up, seven and eight, now rest, big deep breaths, you're doing great, that's awesome, that set looks great. Podcast on two wheels with Patrick, Hottie, and Fatty. Welcome to number 73, show number 73, that is. It feels like we're building up to something, guys. Uh, our retirement? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. Maybe some people will get to retire. I figure like I am going to work until I'm a million. But we're getting close to 100 shows. we got to give something big away when we get to show number 100. What? I like, like that idea. <laughs> Like, let's give away one of your bikes. I don't like that. Hottie, you got a lot of bikes. Let's give away one of them. <laughs> okay. I got bikes. Uh, what do I got? I have a tag along I'm not using. I have um, I have a giant TCX that's beat into the ground at this point. So perfect. Yeah. Let's give, we should each give away our least used bike when we get to show number 100. I have a tandem that weighs like 80 pounds. I paid $400 for it sits in the backyard and is basically rusted into the ground. Time trial bike for <laughs> me. <laughs> Twice. Time, my time trial bike would go in a second. It would, yeah. it would be hard. I mean, it would cost so much more to ship that than I am willing to spend. Oh, mercy, guys. We are available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and, of course, on iTunes. If you haven't subscribed, why haven't you? Just listen to the three of us. We need subscribers. Listen to the need in our voice. It's sad, really. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, let's talk about bikes. And specifically, let's get to the bikes you saw at press camp. Patrick. Yeah. um, You know, it's funny. When I was there, a few people were complaining that there wasn't much in the way of bike companies showing off new bikes. And I spent 
I spent an entire meal kind of scratching my head going, what on earth are they talking about? Because I saw some of the coolest bikes I've seen, I you know, easily since Interbike there. So Factor is a Taiwanese company owned largely by an American. There are some other investors, but uh, a former pro by the name of Rob Jatellis, he was with Onsei. When he retired from racing after the tour of Taiwan, he just stayed in Taiwan Mm-hmm. And went to work in the composites industry. Fast forward, whatever it is, 23 years or something. And uh, he's now the head of this company that is uh, sponsoring uh, AG2R. Um, and they are producing what I find to be some of the most interesting bikes out there right now. They launched uh, previously in the UK and you know, a bit around the world. When I was in Japan a couple months ago, I got to see a couple of their bikes, but they're now launching in the U.S. And at press camp, I got to ride the O2, which is their top shelf road bike. This is their response hmm. to the Madone or their Tarmac or a Felt F1. And it was one of those things where, you know, I've been, I, I know Rob, uh, I know the guy who heads up U.S. operations, Richard Wittenberg. I've been talking to those guys and, you know, all the insight that I could gather, it sounded like this was going to be a pretty cool bike, but you still don't know until you go out and ride it. And I went out for almost three hours riding around, uh, south of, uh, north of park city. Uh, we went, dropped down in the valley, did a loop and then gently climbed back up. And I tell you, I will put this thing up against a Cervelo R5 any day of the week, twice on Sunday. Hmm. Yeah, very impressive. Uh, I don't really know much about the layup, but I, what I do know is that they're using the most advanced techniques. Uh, Jatellis is a real stickler for process and making sure that the process isn't just well thought through, but is perfectly repeatable every time. Uh, he's adamant that, you know, if you have to make a bike that's 100% 150% stronger than, you know, your testing guidelines require that you haven't gotten on top of your process yet. You know, being 10% above is, is enough if your work is consistent. And so it was one of those things that, you know, I've, I've had some pretty neat conversations with this guy, but I just didn't know what to expect. And so, you know, we rolled out and it felt kind of nice. And then there was that first stop at a stoplight and you, you, accelerate from the stoplight, clip in, you know, stand up, shift into the big ring. And it responded like the very best bikes I've ever ridden did. I'd put it right up there immediately against anything, you know, a Madone, uh, the Tarmac, certainly the Felt F1, you know, any of those bikes, this is right alongside Hmm. them. I am super impressed. And uh, can't wait to ride the one, their aero road bike. Uh, it has a split down tube and, uh, they did that partially for aerodynamics, but the big driver was for stiffness and ride quality. So, um, they're, they're definitely a creative outfit. Um, the staff there have come from all over and are super experienced. So, uh, you know, if people are looking for something new and different, I would definitely say check out factor. Um, and I know their new website, uh, that now speaks to the U S, uh, is up and running and live. So, and speaking of aero road bikes, 
uh, 3T is back with a new road bike called the Strada. Now, 3T is owned by Gerard Vrooman, one of the uh, one of the founders of Cervelo. And it's funny because when he left Cervelo, he said, you know, I've done the aero road bike thing. I'm finished. You know, I don't need to do aero road bikes or time trial bikes or triathlon bikes anymore. I've got that out of my system. And the funny thing was, you know, just knowing human nature, I thought, give him a couple of years. He's going to come around and he's <laughs> going to realize, oh, wait, no, I've, I've got, I've got fresh ideas. I'm not finished here, whatever, you know, uh, I miss my baby. And sure enough. Yeah. So he has designed, uh, a new, uh, road bike an arrow one, like I mentioned, and this is called the Strata. It is a one by arrow road bike that will take up to 30 millimeter wide tires. When I rode it, it had fairly wide rims and 28 millimeter tires. And <laughs> it it's funny, it, it looked like you could almost really, you know, do split gravel duty with it. But there's just, there's not a lot of room in the fork or the rear triangle. So if you pick up more than a, you know, a couple of grains of sand, that might not work out so well. But, yeah. but you know, when they told me it's one by... I had this visceral and immediate reaction of, oh no, not another one by bike. Oh gosh, save me now. And then, because the product manager there, there is uh, Dave Casel, Super Dave X of Felt, um, one of the smartest product managers I've ever met in my life. And I said, well, okay, so how did you, how did you do this? You know, why, why should we listen to this? He said, well, we designed our own cassette. <laughs> and at that point he had me, I was really pretty surprised to, to hear that they had gone to that level of trouble. And for, in his view, the big problem with uh, one by cassettes has been that the jumps are really, really large in the smaller cogs. You know, you go 11, 13, 15, and those, those jumps are just too big. So they went one tooth steps for the first five cogs and then increasingly large jumps as you shift into easier and easier gears. Uh, mm -hmm. The upshot being that it's a 350% gear range, which is basically equal uh, to what a standard uh, spec Ultegra group is. Um, so you've got 11 gears instead of 15 People like to think that their drivetrain is 22 gears, but because of overlap uh, between, you know, various gear combinations, really your average 22 combination drivetrain uh, only has 15 gears. So you're losing yeah. four cogs. It's a pretty genius uh, approach. I'm not sure it'll catch on for everybody, but when I went out and rode the bike, there was no denying that they've really done something very nice. It's a very impressive bike. Um, and I, I do hope that they get some attention for this thing. Um, I'm I in theory, <laughs> I like the idea yep. of that. Uh, Hadi, I'm curious what you think of a, you know, yet another cassette option <laughs> or a, a bike that is tied to its own cassette. To me, that feels like proprietary to the point that it is going to become problematic. Well, yeah, it, it seems limiting, you know, it's like uh, you, 
cyclists, we, we love our options, right? I mean, we like to be able to mix and match where we see fit. And when we get hemmed in by a manufacturer, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes the immediate response is to push away and go, ah, that you're, you're telling me to d- do everything your way. I don't like that. Now, that said, I, I've spoken with Gerard at length about another bike that we're going to we're going to show on uh, RKP pretty soon, the the Open UP. It's kind of his benchmark piece post Cervelo. And that too, that bike too, came with a lot of his ideas. Uh, for instance, they tell you, you must run a zero offset seat post on this bike. That's the way we believe you should run the bike. They set the, the, you know, the seat tube a little more relaxed and they tell everyone, you got to run zero offset. There's no other way about that. The bike also says... You cannot run anything change that wise <laughs> larger than a fifty thirty four, and that's just the way it is. And so, I mean, sometimes you have to take a leap of faith with these guys, especially a guy like Vrooman, who is, who has very powerful ideas and and is you know thinks through these things. So certainly, it's got my curiosity, but I I can see where people would be uh, not quite as receptive to the idea of here. This is the cassette. This is the only yeah. cassette. You got to ride this cassette. Well, that that actually brings up a, a question that I have. You know, I, I'm thinking about in the mountain bike world, I have an RS1 uh, shock, a uh, uh, front mm-hmm. suspension on one of my mountain bikes, which means that I cannot use any of the wheels from any of my other mountain bikes with that bike, only uh, because yep. the hub is specific to the fork right? Yep. Is there that kind of limiting factor? I mean, we all have, I, I shouldn't say we all, but a lot of us have a lot of bikes and we might do some wheel swapping, you know, if something goes wrong or, and we want to make a quick switch uh, to do a ride with this bike, but that wheel set you know, is, will other cassettes work with this bike or is it, is it that kind of you know, one-to-one matching that is going to be necessary. No, no, no. It's it's nothing like that. I mean, if you want to pull out another wheel and slap it in there because you need, you know, a, a skinnier tire or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. that's not going to be any problem at all. If you don't have time to swap the cassettes over, the other cassette will work just fine. You might not like all the gear choices that you have. But one right. of the other really interesting things about this is that, you know, once you get rid of the double chain set... Now you're faced with the opportunity to choose whatever chain ring you want. With one buy, there are an awful lot of choices for different chain rings. So if you're still racing crits, maybe you put on, you know, a 48 or a 50. And if you're riding in Sonoma County like I am, maybe you're putting on a 46 or a 44 or something like that. And so there is a lot of ability to tune this for the particular riding that you're doing. It's, uh, I don't think it's nearly as limiting as some people might initially think. Is it for everybody? Unquestionably not. They have done something particular. And, and, you know, in the presentation, you know, it was made clear that, you know, if you don't like this, that's fine. Uh, they're, they're aiming for, you know, a particular consumer and they want to create a bike that a certain subset of, you know, bike consumers out there are going to go, yes, that's what I've been waiting for. 
<laughs> and three T has been doing such innovative work lately that yeah. it 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 that I do have a tendency to give them perhaps a little more breathing room than I might many of the manufacturers. Let's do one more bike. Yeah. Let's do something from the mountain bike world. What did you see in the MTB universe? Well, I got to ride the new revision of the Pivot Mach 4, but the bike that really turned my head was their other recent introduction, the Mach 5.5. Oh my gosh. I really, uh, I don't want to say I fell in love with it, but I really enjoyed that bike. We did a ride one day where we took the lifts up to the top of Deer Valley and then rode down all the way into Midway. It was an 18-mile ride. I think we lost something like 7,000 feet of, of elevation. There were a few little climbs in there. There was, mm-hmm. there was a lot of descending, very long descending. Uh, any number of us, by the time we got uh, to the bottom and to pro rider Eric Porter's house, uh, we admitted that we had pulled over at one point or another to let our hands rest and recover. It was, I'm, I'm not <laughs> accustomed to doing, yeah, mountain bike descents that are that long. Um, but my gosh, it was, it was great fun. And the thing that impressed me, uh, about the Mach 5.5 was that there were times on the ride where I simply forgot that I was on a bike I was unfamiliar with on a trail I was unfamiliar with at speeds mm. that, you know, were maybe under, under many circumstances, sort of questionable, given that I had, you know, so many unknown variables like that, you know, I wasn't positive what the tires were pumped up to, um, 27.5 wheels, uh, 2.6 tires, um, 150 millimeter fork, 140 DW link, or it's a variation on DW link, uh, in back. So this is very firmly a trail bike. Uh, I have no doubt that you could ride an enduro on it and do just fine. Um, I, I was really impressed with the bike. I, I really enjoyed it. And maybe the biggest surprise of all was that it pedaled really well. So when we were climbing, you know, I, I wasn't suffering through, you know, uh, energy loss due to suspension bobbing, uh, a very impressive bike, but you know, I'm at a point where if, uh, uh, Pivot CEO Chris Kokalis says something, I I just shut up and listen. He's one of those guys who has become, uh, you know, just a a real go to for answers. When he's he's obviously ultra bright, you know, uh, a super creative engineer, but um, he's going his own way, and you know, he's doing really great work. Uh, that that Mach Four, uh, man. 100 millimeter travel basically a cross-country bike and it was capable of doing a whole lot more uh than what you might think you know so just fantastic work uh made visiting park city uh oh so fun as it always is getting out to to ride those trails dude you just have way too much fun you're making me jealous here well i miss my kids (laughs) well there that makes me feel much better. Hey, Hottie, yes. how is your Austrian accent? My Austrian accent? Yeah. I want to hear you say, you're going to pump us up. <laughs> because that's coming up next on the pace line. That is right, Gertie, man. We're going to pump you up. <laughs> Perfect. We're going to be right back in just a minute. And we're going to tell you what we're talking about right here on the pace line. And then come back down. 
and then push into the floor and rise up. Good, two, good. Let the knees drift back, that's it, and push. Three, good. about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist to hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com slash paceline. Welcome back to The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, segment two. And we are going to talk a little bit about the book, Maximum Overload for Cyclists. And it is a weightlifting book. And I understand, Hottie, that you had a conversation with the author. Yeah, first a question for both of you. Do, do either of you work out, gym work? Chapati, do you hit the gym at all? I don't. Uh, there was a time when I did uh, the P90X stuff, mm -hmm. but that's about the most that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um it's I, I, I am far too lazy to go to the gym, which is weird because I'm perfectly willing to spend hours and hours and hours on the bike. Mm -hmm. So and then strength training otherwise, you do anything besides ride bikes? Not a sausage. Mm -hmm. And Patrick, any any strength training, weightlifting in your background or currently? I, I have done it in the past. I haven't done it in a couple of years. Um, I know that I need it. I know that it would help me. Um, I hate I hate gyms and places like that. I really don't enjoy it. Um, I mean, you guys know that I'm not a particularly disciplined trainer on the bike. So, you know, I'm on the bike to go places and have fun. And uh, that's kind of the opposite of what a gym is all about, at least yeah. in my mind. So, no, not doing it. Yeah. Uh, despite that, yeah, I could have availed myself of, of this guy's talents when I still lived in L.A. Sure. Yep. Uh, I have been a fairly dedicated, you know, gym person, even obviously before I got in, into writing. And, and even after I did, I, I continued to keep up the gym work. It was hit or miss for a while. I mean, obviously, the bike took over the life for a while. But I eventually did get back into the gym because, you know, I like I, I, the jury really is still out on on whether or not it actually helps you directly become a faster cyclist. 
folks just have not been able to figure that out. But one thing's for sure, it, it helps you be a stronger human being. And especially for the off-road events that we're doing so much of more now, I find that having some extra strength uh, goes a long way, whether it be for a gravel grinder or a Leadville. There's enough jostling and jarring that goes around that having some extra strength, especially upper body, which cyclists really ignore, uh, goes a long way. So I've, I've remained intrigued about the weightlifting idea. I often explore it. I've checked in with, uh, for instance, Bob Forster of Phase 4 here in uh, West Los Angeles. I've worked out with him. He showed me some stuff. Um, and then a few years back, I ran into somebody that Patrick's known for a while, a man named Jacques DeVore, who is really just a coach. I mean, that's what he is. He's a coach. He's a, he's a strength coach and a cyclist. And he knows, he knows riding. I saw him speak at a local bike shop about weightlifting for cyclists. And he was talking about your one rep max and raising your ceiling overall and something called micro sets and maximum sustained power. And he was throwing a lot of ideas out there that were obviously very fresh in his mind and still in development. And I took it all in. I listened to him a lot and exchanged some, some later emails with him, but never explored it much further. And then recently I was uh, flipping through a national magazine and there's a picture of Jacques DeVore standing there and uh, along with uh, some quotes and some excerpts from his new book, which is called as you said, Fatty, maximum overload for cyclists. Jacques's a local guy here in L.A., so I decided, hell, I'm going to hook up with Jacques, see what he has discovered since the last time I uh, heard from him uh, at the local bike shop and figure out, has anybody, has Jacques, has somebody now finally hacked the idea of weightlifting and, and using weights to make you a faster cyclist. Weightlifting and cycling seem to be like oil and water for a lot of people out there. They just, I think traditionalists will say, you don't have to lift weights. Why lift weights? You're just gonna be tired, you're gonna be fatigued, you don't need it. Bicycling doesn't need that kind of strength. Why in your mind is that the wrong idea? Yeah, well, if you look back at the history of weightlifting in all sport, Basketball and baseball for years, never touched a weight, threw, screw, screw up your throw, would screw up your shot. Now they're busting them for performance enhancing drugs and the guys are getting as big and strong as they possibly can. Cycling is like the last holdout. It's like, you know, we don't want to put any weight on. Probably the biggest issue for weightlifting in cycling is gaining weight. Everybody's afraid because it's a power-to-weight sport. It's the only, I tell people, it's the only place where a bunch of guys around a coffee shop, one guy tells the other guy, hey, you're looking like you lost a little weight. Oh, really? Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But uh, that's what we see in cycling, and you don't see that in many other sports. And I think the weight gain is the biggest fear. And, and, and there's the other thought that by lifting weights, I'm giving up time, taking away from time on the bike, that the weightlifting is going to leave me in a fatigued state. I'm not right. going to be able to put out the effort right. on the bike. Is that true? Well, there's some truth to that. I mean, you, the timing of it has to be right. Earlier in the season, you're going to do more volume in terms of number of days in the gym. As you get later in the season, you can, I believe, and I've coached some people on weightlifting and cycling where they do one day a week of heavy lifts. It's very short, doesn't take a lot of time, you know, 20 minutes or so, and they're in and out with some heavy weights and some power work, and they're done. The timing has to be good, but what you have to think about is after the weightlifting, what happens? If you can produce more force and more power on the bike, let's say you're doing a one-hour tempo ride, and normally you do it at 160 watts. Because of the weightlifting, if you can bump that to 185 watts for that 60 minutes, 
your overload is 15 to 20% better. So what happens is you get more value out of the time on the bike because you've improved your ability to produce power in the gym. Now, in case the baseline listeners think that Jocks is some guy who's been a gym rat his whole life, actually that's not the case. You're a cyclist too, you've ridden and you've worked with cyclists. Yes, yeah, uh, I'm a cycling coach. I've raced, uh, I started racing on the mountain bike. I originally got into cycling because I had a lot of knee issues. I was a wrestler and in the weight room my whole life. And then I started cycling because it made my knees feel better. Uh, and then next thing I know, there was a group here in LA that would meet at the old Ernie's bike store for Tuesday and Thursday mountain bike rides. And I met a guy who said, come on out. I was getting my head handed to me. It was brutal. I would go home and lay in my bed and look at the ceiling and go, oh my God, I don't think I can keep doing this. And then eventually I started making the adaptation from being someone whose efforts were six minutes to eight minutes in length as a wrestler to now doing, uh, you know, one point I did the Everest Challenge and, you know, that's a big race on the bike and a lot of big races and I love it. Yeah, so... And, and you've worked with uh, your most notable client, I guess it would be Dave Zabriskie. He had a lot yeah. of success with yeah. Dave. His last season, unfortunately, he broke his collarbone before he was able to finish the season out. But I started with him in the gym. He wanted to try something different. Uh, he's always was very open to new things. He, if you remember, he was a vegan at one point in time and then changed. So he was always looking for new ways to improve. And we bumped his power dramatically, uh, close to 15%, maybe a little more, depending on how you measured it in a very short amount of time. And he was able to hold power longer on the bike, which is what really wins a bike race. Now Jacques has a new book out called Maximum Overload for Cyclists. The title alone, Jacques, sounds a little intimidating. We're getting back to the myths here. Right. I don't know how many myths you're gonna be able to bust with a title like that, yeah. but explain the title briefly for us. What, what sure. do you mean by maximum overload for cyclists? Exactly. Uh, typically, most people, when they lift weights or work on power, and there's a big difference between strength and power we can talk about a little later, and it's in the book in detail, uh, is that you need to get close to as, as much time in that maximum state as possible. It doesn't mean that every workout is a maximum overload, but if you don't want to add weight, body weight, then you have to have heavy weight. And so for cyclists, there's that myth that you talked about earlier, what's one of the biggest myths, gaining weight. If you lift heavy, closer to maximum as opposed to submaximum, you're gonna get a neuromuscular response. You fire more muscle that you already have without adding any size, which helps force production, which is one of the big components of power. Now, there's a small portion of, of cyclists who do believe in weightlifting and do it. Yep and may or may not be doing it right. It's hard to, hard to tell. Um, but the traditional thinking is you go in, you grab your weight, you start with a certain weight, you add plates, you do three sets, you move on to your next exercise. Right. Um, hopefully you're increasing your force production, your overall strength a little bit. But you've taken that and said, no, let's take weight training and make it something totally different, right? 100%. Uh, I uh, lectured to a group of cyclists recently, and uh, I pulled the room, I said, how many of you have power meters? And about 10 of them raised their hands, about half the group had power meters. I said, what goes into the calculation of power on your bike? When you see waters, what is it? Not one of them knew. It's force times distance divided by time, or force times velocity. Strength is your ability to generate a force. That's where almost everybody spends their time. Cyclists, it's nothing wrong with it because if you're saying I'm adding force production without adding body weight, 
then the equation's going to work in your favor because your power's going to go up accordingly. But the velocity aspect of it, and then what I call maximum sustainable power in the book, is the ability to hold the highest percentage of your power the longest. Where most cyclists stop is, they stop at strength. They stop at just focusing on the force side of the equation. They don't look at the whole equation for power, which is uh, force times distance divided by time. So then, and then what I call the X factor, depending on the distance that you're gonna be racing, how long do you have to sustain that power? If you look at the best triathletes, it's not the fastest sprinter that wins, it's who can hold the highest average speed throughout the entire event that wins. So that's a percentage of their maximum. So that's what I, I turn the corner and not just look at strength, which is where most people stop. I turn the corner in the book and say, let's look at power and then look at how we can sustain power at maximum longer. That's the big difference. Well, just briefly, if you can, give us an idea how your sets, reps and sets differ from the yeah. traditional approach. Exactly. Traditionally, you lift some weights and you get stronger in your lower body. And you say, okay, God, I've gotten pretty strong there. Great, fantastic, that's a start. Then you say, okay, now what are the power exercises are your choice? Most cyclists, because they have weaker upper bodies, will do plyo jumps. It's easier, you don't have to worry about carrying a bar. You just jump up to a box. And you say, okay, well, I'm getting at a pretty high box. You'll do maybe six or eight of those. You'll rest, and that's a power exercise. And you're gonna say, okay, I'm getting an overload in power now. Typically, that's where it ends. Because you can't keep producing power at that level for long periods of time. So what I said is, why? Why can't we train more time at that maximum? So I started toying with the idea of rest between the reps, not rest between the sets. So with my athletes, they may do four maximum jumps, rest for 10 or 15 seconds, four more maximum jumps, rest for 10 or 15 seconds, and continue that for five to six minutes, all at maximum. So the body adapts by being able to produce the maximum sustainable power longer. You're not gonna jump any higher. You're still jumping at the same box height. But what it allows you to do then is when you're climbing that first climb in a race, you're not having to expend as much energy. You have the ability then to climb that hill as fast as you did before at about a 50% output where maybe before you were at 80% in that first climb. And then by the time you get to the third or fourth climb, you're off the back and the little tiny skinny climbers are off the front because they weren't expending as much. So it's all relative power to win a race. So if you can produce, if you can tax yourself less in the early climbs by having more soldiers in your legs to help you out when you need it, it's like having more domestiques in a pace line. So it sounds like more weight, fewer reps, right? shorter rest, fewer reps, shorter rest, more sets. Exactly. Is that, is that right? Well, yeah, but it's not so much more weight, it's optimum weight. Okay. You're, and once again, this is where a lot of people get confused. The strength side is more the weight side. The power side is more the jumping side. So you have to remember that power adds velocity. And so if we were to do six jumps in a row, we would get fatigued if you had a, and you'd start worrying about the box. You'd say, oh man, I'm gonna miss this box if I keep jumping any longer, I'm gonna just beat the hell out of my shins. But if you were to rest, if you were to do three jumps instead of your eight jumps, 
and then rest for 10 seconds, and then three jumps, and then three jumps again. You may get 15 or 20 jumps total on that box instead of just eight. So, so you're that's play, you're playing into the cyclist's ability to recover. Exactly, too, right? 100%. And it works perfectly for cyclists because you have to have a cardio engine to support that long of an effort. So it's perfect for any endurance athletes and cycling as well because, and the other reason why it works so well for cyclists is because most cyclists are weaker in their upper body. So they can't carry the traditional Olympic lifts that you would see for most uh, power sports. Well, let's get to that. Should cyclists be working on their upper body? Yeah. Uh, I think especially uh, for lots of reasons. Number one, if you do crash, you're not just a coat hanger folding up. Uh, it gives you better uh, you know, awareness of your body and how to control the bike. I think that what you'll do is you'll find if you do something extreme like a Leadville or something else like that, it's not your legs, it's your lower body, your upper spine, your neck, all these little muscles that will be the limiter that'll put you out of the race and you never suspected that those would be the problem at the time. So it makes you just healthier overall. You know, I think that, uh, and there's a lot to be said. Uh, I know that when I do a long century and I'm going hard, the next day my triceps are sore. You know, and you're going, well, that's because my back was fatigued. And so I started overweighting my upper body to carry the weight that my back couldn't maintain anymore. And so, you know, you, want, you just, there's a point obviously where there's no added value. You just have to find that optimum spot. Uh, final question, Maximum Overload for Cyclists is the book. If somebody buys this book, can they su be successful on their own with just the book or do you advise a coach in the process? Well, if you can find in the early stages, if you haven't done any strength training at all, I would say find a coach just so you don't hurt yourself. But this book, if you've done any weightlifting at all, gives you everything self-assessment, it gives you a whole three months of training on how to incorporate into cycling, pre-season, post-season, uh, all of that. So it goes through step by step. It shows, it explains all the work, all the exercises, the primary exercises I use, and it talks about how to build the mini sets. And what we use so that anybody could do it as an example of the mini sets are walking dumbbell lunges because then you can measure the speed kind of yourself of how explosive you are in the lunge if you get in trouble, you just drop the dumbbells. So it doesn't matter if you get fatigued, you go, oh, I'm done, you just drop them. And th there's no risk for injury for a cyclist. And it's a very cycling specific movement where you're doing that unilateral one leg after the other. So it's awesome and then you can time it and you can measure the steps. So it talks about that uh, walking lunges. And when I trained Denise Mueller, the woman who set the uh, land speed record recently as a woman at 147 miles an hour, she did nothing but the walking lunges. Yeah. Well, Jacques, thanks for being on the pace line. Normally, you say, let's go for a ride, but let's go lift some weights. Yeah, 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 let's go lift some weights. Exactly. Thanks, Michael. Again, that was Jacques DeVore. The book is Maximum Overload for Cyclists. It is available now. Amazon.com is one place uh, you can get it. Um, it is out by Rodale Press, by the way, the folks are with Bicycling Magazine. So Jacques is a very cool guy. I've been doing the workouts, by the way, guys. Um, yeah. The, yeah. Um, the, the key point of the workout, the high point of the workout is the walking lunge that we talked about uh, in the interview. So I've done about hmm. three or four of these workouts. You know, you have to you have to replace a hard day on the bike with this day in the gym. There's no two ways about it. You will be sore afterwards. <laughs> you just have to accept the fact that one of your hard days of your workout week will be a day in the gym. 
But so far, so good. Uh, I haven't hurt myself. And, you know, TBD on on the results. I think it'll get its – I think this routine will get its final test, you know, coming up here in the summer on some of the longer events. We'll see how we do with some some maximum overload training or maximum sustained power training, as Jacques likes to put it. So – and I, I encourage you guys. You guys are both masters. You're both over 50 now. If you can, find some time for some strength training. Fatty, Patrick, uh, you know, it helps the joints. Uh, helps the bones. Uh, you'll be able to pick up your kids till late in your life. <laughs> there is no way I'm picking up my kids, but <laughs> I, the the youngest one is 15 years old for crying out loud. <laughs> that said, I I like the idea just to break things up a little bit, you know. So yeah, uh, we'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Take a look at it. We're, we're gonna pump you, Patty. We're gonna pump you. you up. And and this one has more to do with more to do with equipment then it has to do with techniques and new uh, new workout skills. Do either or both of you have a lockout, a remote lockout, on uh, this, on your front suspension for your mountain bike? Yes. No. How about you, Adi? No. No. No? Mm-mm. So uh, let, let me ask you this then, Patrick. How often do you use it? How often do you toggle uh, the lockout on your fork? Constantly. So I'm, Constantly. I'm on a Scott genius and it's got, uh, the double tap, uh, uh not mm-hmm. double tap. Sorry. Um, oh, wouldn't, you know, I, I have to go and forget, uh, what it's called now. Uh, twin lock. There <laughs> twin we go. Lock, Thank yeah. you. Uh, twin lock. And so twin lock is a three position lockout. There's wide open. So the fork and the, the rear suspension are fully open. Then there's the middle position, which reduces the travel of a 140, 130 bike to 100 front and rear. They call that traction mode. And then there's the third position, which locks out the rear entirely and leaves the front fork at 100 millimeters of travel. And I use that constantly. So if I'm pedaling, I'm in traction mode, the middle position. And if I'm descending, it's wide open. Uh, unless on occasion I do forget where I'm just so on top of it, um, you know, going so hard that I forget to open it up. But generally, I mean, you can you can just look at my rides and, and tell, oh, he's at the top of something here. You know, he's opening it up. He's at the bottom starting to climb something. It's back in traction mode. I don't use the, the rear locked out all that often on the road. I use it some. Um, and really smooth climbs, I'll use it, but there's not a lot of that here. But yeah, so yeah. I've got I've got the technology, and I use it like crazy, and it clearly uh, makes me faster on the bike. So I I have an RS1 on both of my mountain bikes, both of which are hardtails, um, both of which um, are made for racing. One is a single speed, one's geared, and I also like you, I lock out or unlock constantly it's just you know two position in or out and my wife has the rs1 we (laughs) you can tell we're big fans of the rockshox rs1 fork and she never ever remembers to uh, to do her fork uh you know to to uh to lock it out or un or to open it up and it made me think what if I ask uh, if I put up a post, a, a poll on Twitter. So I did uh, earlier today. Uh, have close to around 100 votes now. And 51% of the answers said, I always forget. Mm-hmm. So actually, 
people people forget people are forgetting to use their remote and the the way i po- posed this was specifically if you have a suspension fork with a remote lockout so it's not people are saying i don't use a remote i don't use a lockout because i don't have one this is a question for people with lockouts and about half the people just forget to use them <laughs> um, and then uh, there are 14% who are like you and me, Patrick, uh, who, you know, every climb and descent, you are you are using that lockout. You're toggling it. Wouldn't you know and, I'm at the shallow end of a yet another bell curve? <laughs> I, it, it makes me wonder. I mean, is there, you know, do too many people have technology that they aren't using? I know one of the thing, one of the reasons I stopped using a dropper post was because Unlike the the uh, the remote lockout on my uh, on my fork, I did forget to use it. It's something that you have to kind of get used to. You have to wear into it and get so you're comfortable with using it. Whereas I have friends who love the dropper post, but they've spent enough time that it no longer is a a mental a mental decision, right? You're just using it the same way that you don't think when you shift. You don't think when you. Uh, break, it's just right? something you, you need to do. It's something you need to do, right? Mm-hmm. I, you guys don't think about, I'm going to use this much front brake and this much rear brake. You just brake, right? Yeah. Um, it's, I, I wonder if there is something there, right? Uh, how much are we able to, you know, how much are we able to mentally accommodate? And is it something that's easier to do? Uh, when you're younger, or is it easier to learn all of them at once or to sort of ease into it? You know, learn to shift, learn to break, learn to handle your suspension, learn to handle your dropper post, you know, all these things that we are, that you are doing, is there a limit to how many you can do before your brain stops enjoying the ride and you're more managing your equipment? Well, I can tell you this much, my bike between brake levers and the various buttons and whatnot, there are nine things to operate on my bike. Two brake levers, four shift levers, a dropper post, and then the the two (laughs) levers of twin lock. So I think we can actually accommodate a pretty fair amount. I'm not not a great rider by any means. Um, And the thing that I will maintain is that you know, having all this stuff to deal with, you know, shifting gears, braking, dropping the dropper post as I drop into a descent and making sure that the suspension's opened up, it keeps me focused on what the terrain is doing and thinking about the trail in front of me rather than, you know, the the stupid driver who tried to run me off the road on my way to the park. Um, hmm. It really keeps me rooted in the moment. And I, you know, I'm a big flow junkie. And I think that's actually a pretty helpful detail. So interesting. I, I like it. Yeah. So, Hadi, you don't have <laughs> a remote lockout on your uh, front fork. Yeah. What do you have? Or are you riding rigid right well, now? Well, I have two mountain bikes, right? Um, mm-hmm. One had had the brain fork, which I actually, uh, there's been a lot, you know, there's been. <laughs> Kind of a polarizing thing, the old brain thing that specialized sure. it. I actually liked it, especially I thought it was great for cross-country people who just want to pedal, right? The cross-country guy just wants to pedal his butt off. He doesn't want to really think about too much else. The brain is perfect. I like the brain. It worked. Mine worked fine. But I, in the end, I thought so much of it that I ripped it out and put a rigid fork in. 
Um, so that's what, <laughs> that's what I've got now. My full suspension bike is similar to Patrick's. I have CTD, Climb, Trail, Descend. Uh, those are Fox products. Um, I like the cl- I like to keep things simple. I, it's one by, it's CTD. I've got no remotes, two brake re- levers. Uh, that is it. Um, for me, I can put the bike in trail mode in most 90% of conditions and be fine. Now, mostly that's because I have DW Link, which Patrick talked about earlier on that, that was on that pivot bike he rode. And that thing pedals so nicely that even in trail mode, you don't have to worry about switching it back and forth. Just put it in trail mode and go and bomb what you need to bomb. So I, I like for me to keep my eyes on the trail and focused on the riding, less is better. Less pushing and this and that and just find my gear uh put my one my fingers on the on the brake levers if i need to and go and and that for mm-hmm. me works best i like i like the cleanliness i keep it and i've seen those damn remotes fail my friends more often than not they walk in the shops all the time with the cables adjusted wrong or frayed or what have you and so i i, I keep the remote off the bike for now huh Dude, perish, perish that thought. You you just totally jinxed me. Hmm. Don't do that. <laughs> ride clean, ride clean. I don't I want say. my remote to, to break. I, I use that. I bet I press it a hundred times in a in a, in a four hour ride. Hmm. Yeah. I bet I Yeah, do. that seems reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, different strokes, different folks. We all still like riding, right? Mm-hmm. So let's move on to the news. What's going on? Oh, well, sad to say, uh, Vista Outdoor, uh, a big holding company that owns a lot of outdoor companies, laid off a whopping 57 people on Tuesday. Bell lost two employees. Jira lost four uh, employees, including the marketing manager, Amanda Shaper, uh, who was my contact there. Um, the, The announcement for the layoffs included some pretty typical MBA language about right-sizing the company and improving efficiencies. Dude, I hate that stuff. Um, Amanda was as bike industry and dedicated to Jiro as anyone I'd ever hoped to find. You know, she's rad. Uh, you know, I rode with her for, uh, you know, at a few different events, in, including Grindero. Um, she's, she's one of us and she's a really hardworking individual. And I don't understand a world where, you know, her presence at Jiro was inefficient that uh, no, just that's a big fat mm-hmm. second. No, but you know, there's, <laughs> there's other things that bother me even more about this. So Vista owns a whole bunch of outdoor companies in addition to Bell and Jiro. They also own eyewear maker Belay and Camelback and Blackburn. So 50 different companies in the outdoor segment. Some of those are gun and ammunition and golf companies. So you wonder, well, how bad was it for Vista? Things were so bad that in 2017, fiscal year 2017, which ended March 31st, sales were up by 39% over 2016. Just awful. And then... (laughs) That, you know, that 39% increase in sales over 2016 meant that they made more than 20, uh, had a more than 20% increase in gross profit. I mean, people must have been suicidal, right? You know, but, but their shooting division was off by 2.3% in fiscal year 17. So the fourth quarter of 17 was down 19.1% compared to the same period in 16. (sighs) 
I, I can't make this stuff up. Okay. Here, you'll love this. The, the statement from the CEO, uh, Mark DeYoung, said, We are experiencing unprecedented decline in demand for ammunition and firearms following the presidential election and softness in the retail environment. These impacts have manifested themselves in our results. In order to address ongoing market headwinds, we are taking actions on several fronts. Wait, so... So so pro-gun president means worse uh, sales for uh, gun-related uh, manufacturers. That's really interesting. And, and the upshot is, okay, so we're not selling as many guns or as many bullets, so let's lay people off from the bike industry. Shut yeah, my yeah. hole. <laughs> one, one final little note on this. So it's common for us to want to take action against companies we don't like with boycotts, right? I don't want people to think that that's an appropriate response here. I really hope that our listeners will continue to support Bell and Giro and Blackburn and the rest of those companies that are in our market. You know, certainly Camelback. Um, they're doing great work. And, you know, the actions of their parent company should not reflect on those companies. Uh, so I encourage people, you know, if you were thinking of buying a Bell helmet or a Giro helmet, continue to do so. Well, as long as we are making our our blood boil, hmm. let's talk about that Le Mans suit. Oh God, this is this is almost sort of comic. Um, yeah, well, more than almost, it's definitely comical. Yeah. So there's a marketing company uh, in the Minneapolis area uh, that has registered 66 different web addresses with names that relate to Lamond and his composites company, Grail. Um, Lamond sued for $6.6 million and uh, the federal judge, this is in federal court, federal judge John Tunheim has granted a temporary restraining order. Uh, <laughs> and and this was listed as one of the reasons, in part because the Stitchfields, Stinchfields have no business relationship with Lamond at all. Uh, they run a site called Lamond Industries that is basically little more than web-based slander against the retired pro. Um, and that that site hasn't been shut down yet utterly amazes me. I mean, seriously, I, I don't see how anyone could look at the site and not conclude that it's just slander. There's a lot of rumor and, and innuendo and accusation. Um, and it's written by the younger of the two Stinchfields, and he is clearly a Lance Armstrong fanboy. Uh, one friend of mine who I tipped to the site wondered if it wasn't just Lance Armstrong himself writing it. Uh, but I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, in one of the blog posts, uh, Stinchfield notes just how litigious Lamond is. But it somehow never occurs to him that Lamond might take action against him for using his like likeness and company name um, without his authorization. Um, so it's it's a weird case. Um, and this is one I definitely need to continue to follow. And we will mm. update everyone as as more things happen here. Interesting. So this is probably not a great time for me to reveal that I just started a new website called Red uh, RedKitePrayerSucks.com. <laughs> oh, that's good. That, well, that joke would have worked better if I hadn't stumbled halfway through it. Well, we could sell we lots of socks no. that way. <laughs> oh Some wait, you said oh. 
Ow. Hey, very nice. Let's go on to paceline picks for crying yeah. out loud. Hottie, yes. you want to start? Yeah. Oh, I love to start. I love to lead off with this. Um, All right, I'll draft. My previous club and team, Hot Wheels Cycling, was gracious enough to invite me to their annual century ride recently. It's a good ride, and the route is fairly popular around these parts. The pedaling portion is from downtown Santa Ana, not from from uh, Disneyland, to San Diego. To get back, we take the train, the Pacific Surfliner. It's a lot of fun. There's always a mix of abilities on the ride. My racing buddies will ride with the group for, for about the opening 15 miles or so, then drop them like a hot rock or hot wheels in this case. I like mm-hmm. to stay back and uh, meet new people and provide a pull or two when needed. Plus, this year I was on my Choach, a 30-year-old lug steel bike with 32 triple cross wheels, 28s, with about 75 to 80 PSI and down tube shifters. So really didn't have a fast bike, but a nice bike. We took off on schedule, and I found a group of about eight to hang with for the day. I could tell early on, though, that there were disparities in abilities and that this small group I was now in could itself get split apart. Sure enough, as we rolled through Camp Pendleton, a couple of our boys were dangling off the back. After our lunch stop at the south end of the Marine base, I partnered up with one of them. His name is Mark. He had a full, and I mean full, gray beard and bearded legs to match. He wrote a giant defy. It would be Mark and myself for the rest of the ride. At mile 80, the Hot Wheels Century hits its toughest spot, the Torrey Pines Climb. It takes about 15 minutes for someone who doesn't ride much. I could tell Mark had been suffering. So, as we started our ascent, I employed a tactic I've used on others. Tell them a story to take their mind off the ache in the legs. As we approached Torrey Pines Golf Course... I told Mark about professional golfer Phil Mickelson. Phil was brought up and still lives in the San Diego area, and Torrey Pines was where Phil launched his professional golf career. Mickelson is still on tour. He has 46 career victories, including five major championships, three Masters, a PGA, and a British. I told Mark that Phil was home this weekend, missing the only major championship he has not won, the U.S. Open. He has six second places at that event, and it has become his obsession to win the national championship and complete his career Grand Slam. But as I told Mark, Phil Mickelson was not in Wisconsin this Father's Day weekend playing for his last goal in golf. He was at home in San Diego. The reason? On Thursday, the day of the first round of play, Phil's daughter Amanda was graduating from high school, Valley Victorian. Mickelson stayed registered in the tournament as late as he could, hoping weather might delay the start of play. He could attend the ceremony, the graduation, then fly to Wisconsin and make his tea time. The rescue storm he needed never came. So Phil withdrew from the open and on Thursday watched his daughter give the graduation speech and receive her diploma. I told Mark this was not the first time Phil's daughter, Amanda, affected his U.S. Open play. In 2013, when she graduated from middle school, Mickelson flew from Pennsylvania, where the Open was being played, to California for the ceremony, then back to Pennsylvania in time for the first round. And in 1999, Mickelson wore a pager during the whole U.S. Open because his wife, Amy, was pregnant with Amanda and was due. If the pager went off... Phil had plans to leave in the middle of the tournament to be home for the birth of Amanda. The beeper never went off, but that open in North Carolina was the first of a string of second places for the golfer they called Lefty. 
The story seemed to help Mark, and hell, I enjoyed telling it, as I am right now. The U.S. <laughs> Open is always played on Father's Day weekend, and while this pace line pick focuses on one dad who clearly did the right thing, I know my father dropped things to be there for me, and Fatty and Patrick, you too, have put personal goals and plans aside to be with your children and their uh, important moments. So, my pace line pick is to all the dads who do the right thing. That's a good pace line pick. Wow. I want to just follow up on that with a very, very quick story. One of the very first times I ever did a marathon, it was the Death Valley Marathon. It was supposed to be a climbing, then big descending marathon. Instead, because of weather and rain and erosion, we had to do a flat one uh, just across this dead lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was not doing well. My girlfriend at the time... Uh, a girl named Lisa, who at the time we just called the runner, uh, could tell I was not doing so well. And she told me a story for 14 of that 26 miles. Later that day, I asked her to marry me. Uh. Um, (laughs) It was just, uh, yeah, uh, helping someone uh, survive when they are suffering. That kind of story, uh, it can make a big difference. Big difference. So, hey. Uh, great pace line pick there, Hottie. Thanks. Very cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a real quick pace line pick this time. My family and I this last weekend dialed up on iTunes a little movie called Blood Road, a documentary uh, starring and uh, I don't know if directed by Rebecca Rush. Red Bull Media House talks about her uh, and another uh, another woman riding. Uh, to find the crash site of her father uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, who, who uh, of course died on uh, upon yeah, upon crashing, it is a beautifully filmed uh, movie, beautifully told, and worth it for anyone who is uh, who has watched uh, or who enjoys a good documentary. This is a good documentary. Blood Road, starring Rebecca Rush. Uh, and I don't think there are very many cyclists who need to be told who she is. So that's my baseline pick. Neat. I didn't know it was available on iTunes already, so I'll look it up that way. Just I... barely is. Okay. Just, it's, it's been on... in theaters, and I think it still is in theaters, but it is available on iTunes, YouTube, uh, you know, the whole game. Yeah, Amazon Prime, Excellent. that's right. I have it in queue on Amazon Prime right now. Perfect. Your turn, Patrick. All righty. Well, uh, my pace line pick is a kid's book that's uh, in a Kickstarter right now. So uh, two years ago, I believe it was, uh, uh, there there was a, a book that came out called B is for Bicycle. And uh, the same folks behind that are doing a new book called Buddy Pegs Taking the Lead. And it's a... Uh, it's, looks like a really cute little thing um so scott and janine fitzgerald are the creators they used to have a bike shop in jackson hole wyoming and uh i met them i believe it in at interbike you know i go to so many events now i'm not sure but i met them somewhere and uh got a copy of b is for bicycle and that's become certainly one of the books in our bedtime story rotation Uh, So I'm excited to see that they're doing another thing. They're all about, you know, kids, young kids and bicycles and uh, creating our our next wave 
of adult cyclists, uh, I guess you could say. So they, the Kickstarter just started. Uh, they're already at $15,980 out of a $35,000 goal. They've got 174 backers. And the beauty of this, they've got 23 days to go. So I, I think they'll get there. Uh, but certainly supporting their Kickstarter will be the, the first opportunity for someone uh, to get this book once it comes out. Uh, so that's my baseline pick. Fantastic baseline pick. Totally support the indie publishers. Uh, love them. Really love them. Let's go ahead and close the curtains on this episode. Thanks much to our listeners for listening. If you haven't subscribed to the Paceline, please do. Rate us, review us, all the places that you normally would. Uh, we read those reviews and we appreciate them. We learn from them. And please leave us a comment. In particular, let us know what more you would like to see, what you'd like to see less of. Let's end by saying, for Hottie and Patrick, I'm Fatty. You've been listening to The Pace Line. My father was shot down in the Vietnam War. And ever since his remains were identified, I've been planning an expedition to ride the entire length of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, to search for the place where his plane went down, and to discover the circumstances surrounding his death.